You're listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row with the number seven spelled out or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-row.com. First Folio. I'm your host, Alex Heaney. I'm the editor in chief of The Seventh Row, and you can find me on Twitter at BWestCineast. That's B W E S T C I N E A S T E. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about films of Richard III, starting with the 1950s Olivier, Laurence Olivier film, and the 1995 Ian McKellen film that was based on the stage production that he did with Richard Eyre. My guests today are Mary Angela Rowe. Hi, I'm Mary Angela. I'm an editor at large at Seventh Row, and you can find me on Twitter at Lapsed Victorian. And our very special guest from No Holds Barred, our second crossover episode, or like <laughs> six, if you count how many Twelfth Night ones there are, <laughs> um, Kevin Contardo. Hi, I'm Kevin Contardo. I'm a primarily a Richard III fanboy, but I'm also the co-host of the Shakespeare podcast No Holds Barred. You can find me on Twitter at Fear Strikes Out and No Holds Barred at No Holds Barred Cast. Excellent. Hi, thanks uh, for having me. Very special is very okay. generous, but I will absolutely take it. <laughs> um, yeah. Shall we give some first impressions of what we thought of the two films first? <laughs> sure. I think I will refrain from talking. Y'all know how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Um, I thought the two, um, I think there's no such thing as a bad Richard III because the more Richard you III I have in my life. <laughs> okay, controversial opinion alert number one. Um, I thought that both of these Richards had a lot of very interesting things to present. They had some hits and they both had some misses. And I think that they were different for the two. And I have a feeling we will get into some fairly deep depth on those in the next several, in the next two to eight episodes. We'll find out. <laughs> um, yeah, I pretty much agree with that. Although I'm not sure. I guess I haven't seen a terrible Richard III. Although maybe Lawrence Olivier is putting me to sleep is a good argument for that. But Bad sign. <laughs> like you've announced a lot of great movies. That's true, I have. It doesn't mean anything, it just means I'm tired. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I actually, I, I found a lot to admire about the Laurence Olivier one, and I was really, really, really dreading it. I still find the acting style and a lot of it really dated, but there's a lot of really interesting um, directorial choices that I really admired, really elegant blocking. The trouble is, is... After you're about like 30 minutes of it, it just gets so boring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, well, think, and you, yeah. you get the ideas and then and then you have to watch them on repeat with a bunch of white dudes who you can't distinguish. It's just another white dude in a silly hat. And it goes on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I have I, I 
like a lot of the things about the McKellen film also, I appreciate the ways in which it's managed to cut down the text like crazy, but also kind of annoyed by that. And yeah, I don't know. It's it's very interesting, but I don't know that it's one of my favorite Shakespeare film adaptations, which <laughs> Angela will kill me for. <laughs> Is it so? Is it one of your favorite uh, Shakespeare film ad- adaptations? Is that what that implication is? So it's one of my favorite films. Yeah, <laughs> in fact, like it's one of my ten favorite movies. Wow. I don't know if I would go so far as to say that it's one of my favorite adaptations, which I guess is a bit of a different question. Mm. Um, sure. It, I will say it was the first Shakespeare on film I'd ever seen. And it was the first Richard I'd ever seen. And I saw it when I was pretty young. I think I was like 11. And so it's the portrayal that I've measured all other portrayals against. Okay. Which may not be fair to everything else. Uh, yeah, it's, it's setting the bar pretty high. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Olivier's, like, part of this isn't the Olivier version's fault. But I I just have difficulty with the, the like, old-fashioned, kind of campy, Olivier mm-hmm. style of acting. Yep. Sure. Actually, one of the things that I found, you know, like I love the Twilight Zone, right? Mm-hmm. And when you watch those old Twilight Zone episodes, which are from, I think the Twilight Zone was the, like the early 60s, mid 60s. Um, since they have a lot of theater actors that are in those one-off Twilight Zone episodes, and especially the older actors have clearly been in theater for like 40 years. And then they're just in one episode of the twilight zone and their acting is so big. So yeah. like they're <laughs> playing to the balcony and it's like this tight shot of them, of course, in, inevitably in some like post apocalyptic nuclear fallout wasteland. And it just looks comical because of how big it is. Cause they don't know in this time period, they don't know how to act for the camera yet. And I thought actually Olivier was surprisingly good in terms of keeping things small like in his first monologue he does it all with his eyes which is something that he couldn't have done on stage because i've seen the flip side now and you have you know i saw the julius caesar that denzel washington did like 10 years ago on broadway and it was so small and i was sitting in the back row of the theater and it's like i bet that's really good if you're one foot away from him but i can't see anything (laughs) right now um, yes. And I thought Olivier had some degree of that smallness, but yes, everyone else in this was very big. We yes. are acting. <laughs> this is me acting. Um, and spoken exactly like that, too. Right. Brother Buckingham. It's like, okay, okay. The microphone's right here. We're okay. You don't need to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought that, yeah, especially what you're saying about all the all the secondary characters, all just kind of being this, like, mosh of kind of pasty white guys who I wasn't really sure who they were. But Olivier, I thought, was electric. He's a really good actor, that Larry Olivier. (laughs) He's going to go far. But yeah, when I was, I was pretty much, when I was watching it, anytime he wasn't out there, I was like, okay, well, it'd be great if he could come back now, please. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yes, definitely dated, especially everyone else. Very dated. All right. Um, do you want to talk about the differences between the two Richards and what's driving them? Sure. Who wants to take that? I think we're going to let you go first. Perfect. You you guys know that I'm just overflowing with opinions. So just, just, just <laughs> yeah, like that, shock that me. That has become abundantly clear. 
<laughs> you guys can just like give me that ta- like tase me and I'll just shut up. Um, so I think you know as a you know as a Richard the Third fanboy, as a deep lover of this character, one of the things that I think the basically what I think the mistake to make with this character is if you just play evil, you know, and like I think there are a lot of actors who play your Iagos or your Edmonds or your Richard the Thirds, and they're like, oh, I'm just going to play evil, and that is so boring just to be like evil and i kind of feel like mckellen at some points just chooses to be evil Um, but anyway (laughs) okay well i mean i'll I'll give you the specific so the specific moment like when uh when he gets queen elizabeth lady gray's consent to marry he literally cackles um like, I got her, bah, a shallow changeling woman. Bah. And then, I mean, most obviously, which made me slap my forehead on the couch when I was watching it, when he gets shot and falls off the barricade and literally falls into this giant flaming pit that's clearly hell, cackling, direct out, spiking the camera. It's pretty much like Dr. Faust falling down into hell with the devil. I thought that was a little direct, a little on the nose. Um, whereas I feel like the Olivier Richard is his drive is respect or it's not so much power as like those weirdly 1950s moments where he puts his hand out for Buckingham to kiss it. And it's like, and he just wants people to be below him. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah. Or do you you completely disagree? which is also interesting to listen to. I don't t- totally agree with your take on McKellen, but I, I agree that there are definitely moments of cackling evil. Mm-hmm. But I think there are ways in which that gets tempered. Like, Oh, definitely. The way that Clarence is so convinced that his brother loves him, like he's just so completely convinced. He's never even for a minute doubts Richard. And even the way that Anne for whatever reason, has, like, a come-hither look at him one night. Yeah, that's so weird. Um, It suggests that he has, you know, a certain kind of charisma where he really does get people to like him, not just that he's smarter than everybody in the room, but that he genuinely manages to get people to like him. Absolutely. And part of the way he delivers that monologue about, you know, but I, um, listing all of his, go ahead, you know it. Is it that I that I'm not shaped for sportive tricks? Yeah, that's the, that's the one. Yeah, where he's in the bathroom, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The way that everybody just immediately, you know, calls him Toad and are calling him names in it and the way that they really highlight that suggests to me that he's been almost overly... like He's just been told his whole life that he's horrible. And so he's sort of leaning into that, mm-hmm. but it does suggest that he's been pushed into this more than that. He's, he's like, okay, well then I guess I'll play the villain. If you're going to force, if you're going to, if you've decided that that's me anyway, even though he's genuinely capable of, you know, just being charming, even if that's partly to make his, even if that's partly to achieve his own ends. Yeah. And I think they do a nice job of highlighting that too. Like in that opening scene in the McKellen where they're at the, ball and everyone else is in those great 1930s tuxedos and dresses he's the only one that's still in his military uniform Mm -hmm. yeah 
you know, to be like, in, so it ties into that opening monologue where he's like, but I am not shaped for sportive tricks. Like everyone else has put their medals away and are like, oh, we're going to Charleston tonight. And he's like, sorry, I left my tux at home. This is all I know how to do, you know? Does that make, yeah, so that military, that's all he's been good at. Mm-hmm. I buy it. Okay, I mean, you've been making faces. Do you want to add your <laughs> comments? <laughs> I mean, a little bit about the McKellen portrayal. It's not that I disagree. I just have a slightly different take on it. I wouldn't go so far as to say that he's been pushed into this role. It's that, like, so that's, that I've seen a lot of Richards, and that's still probably the most nuanced and convincing first monologue that I've ever seen. Mm. Because you really see, like, I that am not shaped for sportive tricks. I am determined to prove a villain. As in, I could just be some pitiful little man. Mm-hmm. Like, I've got an ambition that drives me forward. And the McKellen portrayal is so funny. Because Richard has this intense driving ambition. What drives him is the need for power. Mm-hmm. But it's not recognition, you know? Totally. Richard feels throughout the play, even when he's, you know, king or whatever, he feels like a backroom guy. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, he has that uh, every time it comes up like, oh, you know, we would we 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 treated him with the respect that we would if you were king. And he's like, maybe king. I would never be the king. You know, he makes that. Yeah. Or all of those times. I mean, you see him crowned and that's awesome. But after he becomes king, whenever he meets with everybody, he's not in the throne room. He's in his office. Mm, and he's right. not wearing the crown. He's wearing his military uniform. That's true. Oh, yeah. And speaking of those um, villainous moments, I mean, he does do that ch- Bond villain chair swivel. Um, the first <laughs> time we see him in his office. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Or, I mean, the, the fact that they... The, the Nazi style rally he has is another one that's pretty, you know, that uh, Art Deco 30 mm-hmm. style rally with everyone. With Not even a little bit subtle about there's it. No subtle, there's no subtle, there's no nuance to that. This is a play where you either have to go big or go home. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and part of what I really liked about that rally is. A, it makes Richard feel real to contemporary audiences, right? Like, it can he can feel very much like a creature of another time. But when you link him to a demagogue that we all remember, you know, you see that Richard, there are many people who have the potential to be Richard. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to this power versus recognition thing, that's one of my favorite moments in the play because it's the one time that he accepts adulation and he sort of accepts it as his due and then moves right on. Right. That's it. There's no follow-up rallies. He's back on the train to the battle, to the front after that. The whole reason for that was an assertion of power, not a desire for an ego boost. Mm -hmm. Richard doesn't need an ego boost. His ego is perfectly healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for for sure. Yeah, I mean the only the only reservation I had about that is that you know it's like that that it's the online comment section trope where it's like, well, this person is literally Hitler. 
when someone's bad. And in this, they are literally making him Hitler. <laughs> and it, it's tough as someone who always sympathizes with Richard III and respects what he's going through. It's tough for me to root for him when he's up there in a black, you know, SS uniform, like, oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> it's also a little bit extreme. I mean, Hitler killed millions, right? Richard right. III killed, like, <laughs> Like you know, two, he killed his family. Two 12-year-olds, like, and that's it. <laughs> God, well, <laughs> it right? And then, like, ten other people. Just the people I'm not that were saying it's okay. I'm just saying that they're slightly different. <laughs> <laughs> I have a thing about the Hitler imagery. Okay. Um, and then we can move on. So, like, you were saying the Nazis are, like, the internet villain, right? They're the ultimate evil. You can gun down Nazis like there's no tomorrow in Captain America movies because no one gives two shits about Nazis. Mm. They are full evil. They are cartoonish villains. They're the baddies. Yes, exactly. But like, like the best and most powerful message of Hannah Arendt's like the banality of evil is he's the guy next door. Yeah. And that Richard, that charismatic entrancing Richard that we see in McKellen is how you see that everybody could be like, that Hitler guy, he's got some real good ideas. Mm. You know? Yeah. It makes them real awful. It makes it terrifying because this is the man that you actually really like. But it's like, it's such a shock, you know, and I will shut up about this in a second. (laughs) But it's such a shock when we've just seen this guy in a normal military uniform, right? Mm -hmm. And we've we've seen him interacting with people. He's, you know, he's a villain, but he's so charismatic. And you love, like, you kind of love him. And then that's the first real costume change you see. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. the first time you see him in a different uniform. And suddenly you realize he's a fucking Nazi. Yeah, I mean, I guess one argument, good argument for that is that he doesn't actually do his killing himself. He does have, like, elaborate systems in order to have other people do his bidding. But And I, I agree with you on that, but he is kind of benign compared to Hitler. Right, we don't, Um, like, in terms of, like, public... (laughs) Well, in terms of, like, public policy, like, as as an administrator of the state, we don't really go into how he is as a ruler. Yeah. Like, maybe he was really good on tax policy. We don't know. We don't really do that. (laughs) The point that I'm trying Um, to make is that you see how a demagogue and a completely evil man could be seductive. Right. No, I agree with you. Sure. What I was going to say is that I think... That the Hitler imagery may be more about, I mean, one of the things that Ian McKellen said in his, what Kevin is calling his manifesto, um, (laughs) um, is that, you know, when Richard III was performed in Elizabethan England, it was recent history, but it was still a few generations back. Mm -hmm. And so that's basically what they attempted to do in the film, is they were like, well... It needs to be a few generations back, but it needs to be recent. So when is that? That's the 1930s. And then, oh, we can, that happens to be convenient. We can pull in, you know, Hitler imagery. But um, I'm not sure that it, that those, I think it might be more about just trying to situate it in a time that we understand more so than about drawing parallels between. Right. If you're setting this in the 30s, that's the way you have to go. He's got to be a Hitler. Like, it makes sense. But I mean, people have done productions of other Shakespeare plays where they actually were like, this person totally is Hitler. And right. I feel like they don't pull that. I mean, aside from that one scene, that's not 
something that they're really pulling. Yeah. Other other than that, see, and I mean, like the uniforms suggest, you know, the black uniforms. Oh, but yeah. that's more. That's more. That's at least more of an illusion as opposed to literally a Nazi rally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. that's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. The next part of the discussion will be available to download on Friday. To keep up with the latest episodes, subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W.com. 